Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. You turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 of Matthew, if you have a Bible. Chapter 5 of Matthew is our text this morning. I want to start by thanking all of those who worked to prepare the parking lot for resurfacing or whatever it is exactly that we're doing out there, but I think it's going to look better and be better for it. But it's taken a lot of prep work, and there's been a number of men, and especially a lot of young men out there working all day yesterday in the heat, um, doing some really excellent work. Thank you so much if you were one of those who volunteered to help. It was encouraging to see, and it's good work to do. Serves us all. Thank you. This summer, we've been looking at a series of imperatives, commands from the New Testament that are timely for us to consider in this season of transition. And we're coming to the end of that series. We've got two sermons left, and then we're going to move on to the book of Acts here in a, a few weeks. Well, in these final two sermons, up until this point, we've been mostly dealing with internal matters imperatives that pertain to, first of all, me, pray for us, pray for your pastors, moving on to one anothering kinds of things that we need to remember and be challenged by and recommit ourselves to. In these last couple of sermons, we're going to turn our focus to our responsibilities here in this world, in the broader world and culture, our duties to the world. A few weeks ago, in a sermon, the imperative, this is from 2 Timothy, the imperative was, don't be ashamed of the gospel. We saw that Paul um, was challenging Timothy, the application that he makes to Timothy in that passage is they're basically conservative in nature. They were like, don't be ashamed of the gospel and here's especially what I want you to do. I want you to guard the treasure of my teaching and my doctrine. Guard it carefully, don't let any of it slip away. It's very vital and important. It's essentially conservative. And I said that God, we sat on a pile of treasure of our own here because of 26 years of faithful ministry of Pastor Bailey among us, and, and, and we have immense treasure of biblical truth and wisdom, both from his teaching and his example that we, God has blessed us with and has entrusted to us, and we need to guard it because Satan wants to steal it from us. He comes to steal and kill and destroy, and we need to work hard together to preserve the good things that we have. But God has not entrusted treasure of his truth to us so that we could all sit on top of it like a bunch of little Scrooge McDucks. Remember Scrooge McDuck swimming in his piles of gold, uh, locked away in his vault or whatever that thing is? We can do that with the good things we've had and we must not. God has entrusted it to us to use, to put to use in this world. We have a mission to accomplish and Jesus lays out that mission to us in a couple of places that we're going to look at this week and next. To, today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And here we see a couple of images put to use to describe our relationship to the world. The, the second one, the big one, is that we are like lights in the darkness. And it's our duty to shine before men. Let's look at it together. This is Matthew 5, chapter... Matthew 5, 13 to 17. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This short passage contains two proverbs, two sayings or teachings of Jesus. A proverb is like a short, memorable, sticky saying meant to get in, into your mind and be unforgettable, meant to teach some sort of deeper moral principle or truth. The lessons in this case both concern the relationship of Jesus' disciples to the world and culture around them. These Proverbs of Jesus appear near the beginning of his most famous recorded teaching or sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's one of the most important passages of Scripture for us to know, and I hope that you will know it, and you'll spend a lot of time reading it and meditating on this wonderful sermon of Jesus. And these, these parables about salt and light come near the beginning of that, but they're preceded by a, a list of things, a list of eight things that Jesus gives statements about who's blessed, the, the nature of the kind of person who's blessed by God, supremely blessed by God. And what we learn when we look at them, those, the, they are the inner qualities of a child of God. That's what they are. And we see that those, are the, the, those inner qualities are the very blessings of God in our life. So that's where he starts his sermon. He's talking about what makes a true child of God, what are their inner characteristics and qualities like in a series of eight statements. And he's getting ready to move from that theme onto the theme of the implications of those inner qualities for what our purpose is here in the world. Why has he made us? Why has he born us again? Why has he made us his children? And what are we here for? Well, we have a purpose, an amazing purpose and mission that we're called to be on here in the world. And that's the theme he's moving to. And the last beatitude, the last statement of blessing that he gives in that list is like a, a pivot point to move us into that theme. Jesus, in the interest of full disclosure, wants us to be forewarned. To be forearmed is to be forewarned. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's what it is, I think. Anyway, Jesus wants us to know that we might encounter trouble. He wants us to know that we will encounter trouble if we're going to live out of the nature that he has born in our hearts. If we're going to put that to use in the world, we're going to experience opposition. And he doesn't want us to be surprised by that, and that's why he adds to this list of blessings the blessing of persecution. Remember this from the last beatitude, the eighth one? It says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A truly born-again Christian living a life of faith should expect opposition. Paul confirmed this truth and he was writing to his own disciple, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So is there any conflict in your life because of your identification with Jesus Christ, because of you, because of you having this new nature in you and living it out in relationship to the people around you? If, if not, if there's no conflict in your life because of this, there's no persecution, no pushback, no opposition that you face in this world, then it does beg the question, are you a child of God? At the very least, it begs the question, are you living in obedience as a child of God to your calling and purpose? So Jesus is trying to prepare us not to be thrown or surprised that when we start to act in this world in a way that pleases him and is f- fulfills his calling in our life, we're gonna encounter some trouble, some difficulty. It's not gonna all be smooth sailing. There will be pushback and opposition. And Jesus says, not only is it okay, you should look on that and realize it's a tremendous blessing. It's a sign of heavenly reward that is great. And hopefully the book of Acts will will allow allow us to meditate on that theme and live there and, and wonder how it is that we, what spirit we need that gives us that kind of perspective on the difficulty and the challenge of persecution. As Christians, we have a great work to do in this world. Jesus is going to open up the nature of this work in two Proverbs. He doesn't want us to fear the persecution that might come as a result of us following him in this certainly doesn't want us to neglect our responsibility because, just because of persecution or pushback. Well, let's look at these Proverbs. The subject of each one is you, the Christian, the disciple of Jesus Christ. You're the object or the subject of the proverb, and the setting is the world. You, a Christian, in this world. In each case, Jesus likens his disciples to an element of nature which he uses to illustrate our relationship to the world and our purpose on earth. The elements that Jesus chooses are salt and light, and they're very significant. The ancient world, the world in which Jesus is teaching in, the ancient world prized those two elements above all else. Have you ever heard of Pliny the Elder? Kind of a funny name. Pliny the Elder was a Roman historian, contemporary of Jesus, certainly didn't know Jesus, but was writing at that time, in that period of history. And he said this in his natural history. He said, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. Nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. So Jesus is saying something extremely positive about your role here in this world. It's as if he's saying to you, to us, There is nothing more useful in this world, by design, by my calling, than you, a Christian. You are like these most essential, necessary element, and I've put you here to fulfill a purpose, a very important purpose. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Don't you feel, are you feeling your potency? Feeling powerful? Feeling the effects of your influence everywhere you go? It's hard to believe it, but this is what Jesus says. He chooses these images. uh, He's wise to do it, and we want to consider what salt and light symbolize, how they work, and what they teach us about our calling in this world. First of all, let's look at salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. So salt was considered a very valuable substance in the ancient world. 
Pliny, again, claims that in former times, Roman soldiers would sometimes be paid in salt rather than money. So it was so valuable and precious a substance that sometimes soldiers, according to Pliny, would get paid their payment for their soldiery in salt. He even suggests that this is where our word salary comes from, has its origins in the word, the root word salt, and has been passed down from this tradition of being paid in, in salt. A man who doesn't pull his weight and isn't worth the investment we make in him, we say, is not worth his salt. Why was salt so important in the ancient world? Well, first, it was connected in their minds with purity. It was a symbol of purity. Probably the whiteness, the, the sort of beautiful whiteness, the shininess of it was, a, was easy to make that connection. The Romans viewed salt as one of the purest elements in the world because it came from two very pure elements, the, the sky and the sea, the byproduct of those things. The Greeks used it, we know, to purify their offerings ceremonially. When they were offering burnt offerings or whatever to their gods, they would, they would purify it by sprinkling it with salt. Even the Jews, up until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, offered many of their offerings with salt by commandment of the Lord. Salt was a symbol of purity in the ancient world and it had a purifying symbolism in worship. If we are to be salt of the earth, then we must be examples of purity, purity in the world. We who were purified by the blood of Jesus should be pure in our actions, in our words, in our interactions here in the world. James commands us to keep ourselves unstained, unspotted by the world. So we're to be in the world, but not of the world. It's a difficult paradox to figure out, but that's what Jesus puts before us. We have to figure that out. We're to be in the world. We can't escape from it. World flight. That's what the old ancient, the old dead guys used to call this problem world flight, pulling back from the world and trying to escape it. We have to be in the world but we are to be different from the world as we are in it, not of it. And we are, James says we're to keep ourselves unspotted by the world. Paul, in Ephesians chapter five, warns us against specific forms of pollution with these words. Immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, no potty mouth, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. We're to keep ourselves pure and we're to set an example of purity wherever we go in the world. Do you uphold a standard of purity at your job at your school, in your classroom, at the sleepover, wherever you are, do you uphold a standard of purity for yourself? What about on the ball field? What about in the locker room? What about 
in the jokes that you tell or the jokes that you laugh at? Are you upholding purity, integrity, honesty, good things? If you're not keeping yourself pure in the ways that Scripture commands us to be pure as Christians, a way that's proper and fitting for saints, and you're not also promoting purity among others, then you're not being salty for God. And if you're not being salty for Jesus, we have the warning of Jesus here. That is, you either are or are on your way to becoming useless to him. He has you here to uphold and promote purity. And if we're not doing this, then we're becoming useless to him. And if we're useless to him, he's perfectly willing to kick us out and to have us be trodden underfoot. This is the nature of God. He creates things to bear fruit for him. And if they don't bear fruit for him, he cuts them down. So it's a warning to us. He says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Are you being pure? Are you promoting purity? Wherever you are, in your classroom, on your team at work. Salt was for the ancient world also an indispensable uh, preservative. That's the word I'm looking for, a preservative. You have a refrigerator at home. That's your main preservative. That's what keeps your food fresh and keeps it from decaying and becoming putrid. Salt, in the days in most of human history, there were no refrigerators. And salt was like their refrigerator. You could rub a big piece of meat down with salt and it would keep for a long time and be edible. There's a principle of decay in the world because of sin. Meat, stuff would not break, things would not decay if it wasn't for Adam's sin. That's, it, there's a curse on this world and it's a curse of decay and death. Alongside physical decay, there is also moral decay. Institutions decline. People, what do they do? They decay morally. Things go bad. They go down. And God has put us in the world as to be salt in this preservative sense, to keep things up, to try to sustain and maintain healthiness in the institutions and the relationships and the people that we're around. You, little old you, can have an incredible influence in your home, in your friendships, in your workplaces, in your classrooms. You, Sam, you boys, everybody here going back to school, listen to me, you can have an incredible impact for good in keeping things up in, the, in a godly moral sense. You understand what I'm saying? You're to have that influence. That's why Jesus has put you where he's put you. Wherever you are, scattered all over the earth like a bunch of little grains of salt, you are to have that preserving influence on the people you're around. 
Do you show concern? Do you demonstrate concern for the people you're around? Or do you, are you willing to just let them slide? That was the word I was looking for, slide. Slide down, down to the pit, down to more and more moral decay, more and more debauchery, more and more rebellion. Are you willing to let people around you slide? Or are you working to hold them up, to pull them up toward godliness? For your influence, through your words, through your approach to them, through your love? Or are you just apathetic and willing to let people go and let institutions go? We're not gonna, if we're gonna be salt, we're gonna have to care. Salt is best known though for being a seasoning. That's probably a seasoning that goes back to the most ancient times. It's one of the most basic elements in cooking. Salt is best known for being a seasoning. Many foods without salt are bland. Potatoes, bland without salt, in my opinion. Christian faith is to life what salt is to food. Christian faith is to life what salt is to food. It's, it lends flavor to the dish and enhances the experience of the eater. You want to do something really interesting with your life? Live by faith and obey God. That's really interesting and adventurous. Jesus is not a killjoy. He is the joy giver. His ways are not boring. They are the truly exciting and adventurous ways. What does Jesus say about why he came? He came that we would have not only life, but have it abundantly. He came to give us abundant life. Live it to the fullest for him. He came to give us joy in fullest measure. He is the joy giver. Young people, listen to me. I really wish all of us, all of your parents here are gonna just be like, yep, we really wish we could get this into your heads. You're all so in love with the world. We see it pulling you, attracting you, and we just wish you could see the vanity of it the emptiness of it. I wish you could recognize the joyless, the colorless existence of the unbelieving culture around you. It's bondage to trivialities, to entertainment, to screens. Screens have so corrupted relationships, knowledge, Oh my goodness, we don't even know what's hit us. Bondage to these things, destructive ideologies and practices that lead to perversity and destruction of the mind and the body and the heart. Especially practices, and, and these practices that are so destructive are so predictable and conformist and boring, especially when they claim to be exciting and unique. The world around you 
your friends, many of your teachers, the things that they believe, the th- philosophy, the worldview that they hold lacks any philosophical, what would I say, reason to exist. It's like there is no, what am I trying to say? Beyond immediate gratification, response to stimuli, that's about as deep as people get in this world. And it is so sad. And what has, what has the gospel, what has the knowledge of the glory of God done for you? It's like the world explodes in color and significance and meaning and purpose. You, God is infinitely fascinating. Would you young people care about him and seek him? He will never disappoint you. He is full of wonder, full of wonder. His truth is what opens imaginations. There's a wonderful book I read some years ago, or at least parts of, I won't claim to have read all of it. It's called The Feminization of American Culture by Ann Douglas. She's a feminist. She doesn't have any special love or affection for the things that we believe, but she can't help but respect the Dickens out of it because she looks on a culture that we have today and she thinks it's totally pathetic, intellectually, creatively, totally pathetic. And she looks back to the early American days when theological Calvinism, which magnifies the greatness of God, and shows man is completely dependent on him. She says, I'm not, I don't wanna bring that back, but I can't help but recognize that that stimulates imagination. And intellectual curiosity. It opens up the world. That is the truth, and the truth sets you free. Free to have a life of joy and interest and curiosity. To be salt, this is why it's difficult. Young people, teenagers, we understand. We've been there. To be salt requires you to be different. Salt has its effect because it is different from the things that it's acting on. It is not the thing, it is something else, and it acts upon the thing with its unique properties. Salt, if you're gonna be salt, you're gonna have to be different. In order to make a difference for Jesus, you have to be willing to stand out in ways that are overlooked, made fun of, maybe even hated and opposed but you can't be salt without that difference. Salt is essentially different from the medium in which it's placed. If you're going to be any use to Jesus in this world, you have to be willing to be different for Jesus and in the ways that he requires. But if you are in Christ, you are different. You are a new creation. And you cannot go around hiding that. It was not given to you to hide. It was given to you to show, reveal, act with, 
act out of towards others. The difference that God has put in our hearts as his children in, in giving us new birth is not a difference that he intends to be put to use only here in the church, only at our dinner tables or when our parents are looking. It's a difference that is meant to pervade our life. Every conversation, every interaction, every place that we go we are to demonstrate that new person is living in us. Jesus himself is there. He's born in our hearts, and his character wants to come out and affect other people. If you won't be like that, then hear again Jesus' warning. If the salt has become useless or tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus has saved you for this purpose, to be salt, salty for him in this world. So be useful to your Savior. Dare to be different. Don't be afraid. You might be thinking, what am I? Or what are we against such a decayed culture, such an overwhelming decay in this world? Anybody been feeling optimistic lately about the, the way things are going? No, I didn't think so. And I think, you probably think on some level, what difference can I make? Well, think about how salt works. You don't need very much salt to season a large piece of meat. It doesn't take very much. In proportion to the piece of meat, you don't need very much salt. But a little bit is potent and powerful. However, not like a big piece of salt on a piece of meat. Like, that's how I kind of think about our, one of our temptations as a church is to just sort of be salty here. <laughs> We can't just take all of us and clomp us down on the world together in one place and have any effect. Salt, you put salt, a clump of salt on a piece of meat and it's basically useless. It's gotta be pulverized into a thousand particles and spread over the whole surface of the thing to have its influence and work. And that's like what Jesus has done with us as his people. He, we are each a little grain of salt, nothing more, nothing less. We are, he's like sprinkled us, spread us out over the, the world. And he wants us to have our little influence with our little group of people where he's put us. And we do all that together and we can have a profound impact on this town, just like salt. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Little old you and little old me, serving the Lord faithfully, being salty, can go a long way to making a difference. In Bloomington, you have to believe that or you're not believing Jesus who calls you salt. So let's talk about light. What's the significance of light? You are the light of the world, says Jesus. 
The first thing to say about this is that when Jesus calls us the light of the world, he's bestowing on us a very high honor. He called himself the light of the world, and he calls you by that name also. He said in John 9, 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus commanded us to be light, he was basically demanding that we be like him. Well, thankfully, we don't have to come up with our own light source. Where would we even come up with that? Jesus is the light, and he shines that light into our hearts, and then that light is so powerful that it makes us to glow in reflecting his own glory, the glory of his truth and his gospel, and we are to let that light shine before men. Whatever light we have to emit comes from Jesus. He is, as John 1 says, the true light which coming, out of the, coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus said, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. If we are in Christ, we have his light within us, not for our private use alone, but in order to share it with others, to shine it before men. The world sits in darkness. The world with all its technological advancement and worldly wisdom, and it's, that's incredible when you stop and think about it, what's happened to the world in the last hundred years alone is just incredible. For all that, the world is in complete darkness. Paul describes it in, or it's described in the book of Acts as just sort of groping around, trying to find their way. The world is in darkness, and that darkness is pervasive and has, is, they cannot see. And it is our job to illuminate them with the truth. Just as you have been had your mind opened to know the truth and to know wonderful mysteries and truths, the deep things, the, the way to interpret it all has been handed to you and put in your heart. And you can give that to others. In fact, that's your duty and calling in the world is to shine the light. What is the light? The light is the light of the truth. It's the knowledge of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, it is the light that God has shown in our hearts. When Jesus said that we are the light of the world, what did he mean? Young people, I'm coming at you again. A, a light is meant to be seen. It is utterly distinct from darkness. It is utterly distinct from darkness. You have to be willing to be different to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. You have to be willing to be different. A the tiniest spark in a dark room is immediately visible and noticeable. It's like, boom, you know, dramatic. A Christian is meant, likewise, to be visible. Jesus reinforces this idea with this, a second image, that of a city which is set on a hill. He says that can't be hidden. Anybody ever been to Edinburgh, Scotland? There's a big fortress up on the, on the hill in the middle of town. You can't miss it. You go to Edinburgh, you'll see it. It's because there's a city on a hill. You can't hide it. Christians, disciples of Jesus, are to occupy a conspicuous place in the world and are to be seen. You are to be seen as a Christian. You're to not, 
You can't live a closeted life, a private Christian faith. That's not pleasing to the Lord. It denies the purpose of his calling you. You are to be seen. We must not try to avoid being observed, even when that observation brings pushback and rejection. Here's a helpful quote that I read. One writer, quoting somebody else who he didn't cite, he didn't know where it came from, said, there can be no such thing as a secret discipleship, for either the secrecy destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. Keeping it in, holding it back, being unwilling to obey Jesus in this way where we shine before men and seek to influence them and share with them the good news that we've received is like spiritual decay that we're committing ourselves to. It's like this is meant to get out and it's healthy to you. It will grow you if you will give yourself in faith to shining before men. I wonder what, I wonder what advancements in faith and in growth in our lives we have lo- missed because we've not been willing to do this. I've not been willing to do this. I confess that. I want to change. I want to see us all change and become lights, shining lights in our community. Jesus goes on to add in verse 15, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. We don't try to light up our bedrooms by installing lights in our sock drawer, closing the drawer. We typically put them on the ceiling in the middle of the room, so it gives light to the whole room. That's, what, that's how you use lights. That's what lights are for. They're meant to be visible and seen. And Jesus steps back from this line of reasoning and he makes this conclusion, this application to you and me. Shine before men. That's what he says, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You've been given light to be a light. You are the light of the world. If you don't shine, the darkness will reign. How do we shine? Jesus says, by not hiding your works. By not hiding. Good works include both deeds and words. It's harder to hide our, it's more tempting for us, I mean, to hide our words than our deeds. We'd like to think that all we need to do is just behave in the right way and people will get it. But we actually, I think what, one of the ways Jesus would have us shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify God. The, end, the goal is that they would come to glorify God, right? We want people to know God like us and to glorify him. Good works are in there in the equation for us to, um, that they're, they're potent, they're powerful, they lead to that end, they promote that end. I think Jesus is saying one of the ways we shine before men is we, we explain that the works come from God. We give glory to God for the works as we do them. We use them as opportunities to testify to God's goodness. This is part of what it means to shine before men. We are not to hide what we know, 
nor the fruit that comes of what we know, because God uses that to lead men to glorify him. They lead people to Jesus. Your works can lead people to Jesus. Your testimony about your works as being wrought in God leads people to Jesus. You might say, well, not in my experience. In my experience, good works lead men to curse God and me. I can think of a lot of times I got the finger when I was at the, the rally. It might even get me fired from my job. Brothers and sisters, we can talk ourselves out of faithfulness in a lot of ways. That's just our faithlessness talking. Remember how Jesus prefaced these Proverbs with a statement about persecution and saying, don't worry, even count it a blessing when it comes. Your reward in heaven is, is great. We can't talk ourselves out of it because we're afraid of pushback and opposition. That's why he prefaced it this way. When are we as a church, when are you as an individual, when is your pastor Jody going to start to have faith for evangelism? That's, that's the implication on my mind. When are we going to start to have faith for evangelism? There is a lot of light in this church. Where's, where are you, Jacob? This is Jacob's constant refrain to me. <laughs> Jacob moved here from California because there's a lot of light in this church and he wants to be around the light. That's what he keeps saying. I thought about it a lot. I know it's true. Not because we shine brightly, but because Jesus has shone brightly amongst us. We have a lot of light here. When are we going to share it with people? When are we going to put that light to use in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our school classrooms, in our community? Some of you do. Most of us don't. And I would include myself in the don't category. One of the things, well, those who tend to be most faithful in evangelism are not those who are necessarily the most outgoing and bold. I'd add that those who are most effective in evangelism are often not the most who are naturally outgoing and bold. They're the people like the woman who worshiped Jesus with the nard. They're people who know they've been forgiven much, so they love much. I think our lack of evangelism is really a lack of love for the people in our community. People who walk closely to Jesus and have clearly in their mind what he has done for them are generally the ones who are really motivated to tell other people about him. One of the things we have to repent of as a church and as people is our temptation to set up our lives in such a way as to avoid people different from us. We actually have to seek them out intentionally and look for opportunities to get to know them and to share our lives with them and to show our love for them and appreciation for them, build a rapport with them and try to evangelize them and lead them to Jesus. We need to be cheerfully there at the school work day. When, they, when the school says, parent, all hands on deck, we got a project to do here over at Seven Oaks or Lighthouse. 
and we need to be there with an eye to loving our neighbors and getting to know them, people different than us. We need to have block parties in our neighborhoods, share our lives with our neighbors and not just live in a bubble. We need to involve ourselves in leadership opportunities alongside unbelievers in this town. It can be difficult. It can be done. It should be attempted. And a thousand other things. We cannot insulate ourselves and wall ourselves off from the world, from fear or irritation, self-righteousness, pride, snobbery, whatever it is. Let's not withhold the light of the Lord from this town, from this place where God has put us. If you're like me, you're just scared to start. I am a shy person. Strangers that I'm not, people I'm not already comfortable with create anxiety in me. If I have to interact with them, I will but I will be uptight and anxious the whole time and I will not handle myself well and I'm looking for the first exit. That's, that's, that's how I am. That's how I'm wired. I found a couple of things that I want to commend to you recently very helpful, very encouraging. One of those things is a sermon by Joel Linton. Joel Linton is a missionary that we support in Taiwan. His daughter Faith is one of our secretaries and Faith, can you confirm something that I, I suspect about your father is that he's kind of shy like me. Oh yeah, big nod for that. He's, he's shy like me. And her dad has taught himself how to share the gospel with people. He now even goes out on walks looking for people to talk to. He has learned not just the language of tai, like Chinese, but he's learned Taiwanese in Taiwan so that he can like be disarming to people. They don't expect him to know Taiwanese. And since, since he's bothered, they're open to talking to him. And this is what he's taught himself to do. He preached a wonderful sermon about evangelism that's helpful, really helpful and inspiring at Andrew Dion's church while he was here this last year. I posted it on my Facebook account this morning. I hope we can get it out to you in the Church Digest or something. I'd encourage you all to listen to it. It's from Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul. It'll be really helpful to you. The second thing is a book that was recommended to me by David Crum called A Faith Worth Sharing, A Lifetime of Conversations About Christ. It's by C. John Miller. I think it's Jack Miller is what he goes by, Jack Miller. I think he's dead now. Um, and he wrote this book, I think, in the last months of his life, reflecting on a lifetime of working to engage people with the gospel. This is a very accessible book. It's an easy read. It's lovely to read. And one of the things that's lovely about it is you just see a man trying to love people around him, not always doing it right, learning some good lessons. There's good lessons each chapter, takeaway points or observations, super helpful and encouraging. I want to give this book to one person here. And here's the, here's the requirement. To, before you raise your hand, I'm going to take whoever raises their hand, I see them first, I'll give you the book, okay? But you've got to commit to something. You've got to be, by accepting this gift, you are promising to read it. And secondly, you're raising your hand because you want to get better at evangelism. So you, who wants the book? Carson, I think it's a little bit above your head. Bree, do you want the book? Okay, 
when you've read the book, you want, I want you to pass it on to somebody else, okay? It's really good. All of you can get it, it's just like $12. <laughs> or you can get it from Bree when she's done. Brothers and sisters, this is an area we need to grow. We've known that for years. God has helped us grow. Little by little, we've been improving. We've been having more faith. But there's a long way to go. I want us to become evangelists to the people we're with. I want that to be in our DNA as a church. We're an evangelistic church. We're an evangelistic people with big hearts for our community. If you're grateful for the light that Jesus has shown in your heart, are you grateful? Then shine the light before men in such a way that they may see your good works and in the day of visitation come to glorify God with you. Wouldn't that be a tremendous blessing? If because of your shining this year, God would give you one more brother and sister in the Lord. I want that for myself. I want it for each of you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us with a spirit of evangelism which flows from a spirit of love, which flows from an understanding of the great love with which you have loved us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us, Father, to be willing to be different, to not be afraid of standing out. Help us, Father, to be willing to shine brightly as lights in this dark world. Help our young people especially as they're going to school and it's very challenging and very difficult not to fit in. Help them to be willing to trust you and to use the difference that they have been given through their faith to bless their school and to, to trans, see it be transformed, purified, preserved, and enlightened. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.